Support for TPR comes from Texas Mutual Insurance Company, a workers' comp provider committed to helping employers get their people home safely. Preventing workplace accidents protects families and keeps businesses productive. More at TexasMutual.com. From Texas Public Radio, this is Texas Matters, a weekly radio news magazine that looks at the issues, events, and people in the Lone Star State. Today on Texas Matters, despite promises to make voting easy but cheating hard, Texas remains one of the toughest states to vote in. If Texas lawmakers create a program that lets families use state funds to pay for private school, who will be most likely to use it? It'd be financially foolish for them not to take advantage of the fact that they can just pull dollars right out of the state treasury. And for years, the National Guard patrolled the southern border. Now the Pentagon is looking for an off-ramp. Is this the proper role for the National Guard, or does that indicate that there needs to be more resourcing for the Department of Homeland Security? This is Texas Matters. From Texas Public Radio, I'm David Martin Davies. How difficult or inconvenient should it be to cast a vote in a well-functioning democracy? The answer is it should be as easy and convenient as possible if you want a high level of participation. If the goal is to reduce participation so only a select portion of the population, a highly motivated and capable portion, is likely to vote, then the answer is create as many artificial barriers as possible to voting, including making voting not only difficult but also scary, which could be behind why Republican leaders in the Texas Senate are now intent on raising the penalty to voting illegally, from a misdemeanor to a second-degree felony. A new report shows that, once again, Texas is one of the most difficult states to vote in. The reasons stem from the chronic underfunding of the state's election system, lack of support for voter education programs, and the battery of voter suppression laws passed in recent years. Katja Aresman is the voting rights manager for Common Cause Texas affected people and affected Texans that have a hard time navigating the laws, um, they do recognize that it is hard to vote here because they feel the effects of the barriers in our election system causing them to not have their voices heard. And so um, I think, you know, part of why we published this report is to continue to elevate a lot of the the reforms that we want to see and also the barriers that a lot of Texans experience. Um, to more of a public conversation, because if you talk to, if you go to a campus and you talk to students that have to walk a mile or that can't get out of class or work to go vote, you will hear them talk about how hard it is for their, them to participate in their electoral systems. Um, or you talk to, you know, folks navigating, uh, you know, being off paper and, and formerly convicted felons, they will ask questions about their eligibility um, but that might not be, you know, a day-to-day conversation that every other Texan who already participates in our elections talks about. So when we uh, talk about Texas being the hardest state to vote in, we're automatically also going to think about, well, what is the state that's easiest to vote in? This has been explored as well. And it's states like uh, Washington that have automatic mail-in ballot. Uh, Everyone votes by mail. That seems to be the thing that could be the easiest thing to implement that would make it easier. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think Oregon and Washington rank up there in terms of states that are the easiest to vote in, and they utilize some of the same practices that Texas utilizes. We already have the process to send mail-in ballots to eligible voters. The problem is that Texas has these uh, unnecessary 
um, and antiquated uh, uh, eligibility requirements that almost no other states have that inhibit their ability to uh, participate in that in that process of voting. Um, and then on top of that, there is not adequate funding to make sure that ballots get to voters on time. So that way they can be returned and counted. That there is intentional outreach to have voters cure or correct ballots that might have a mistake um, or might not include the right ID number. Um, and so that that causes, you know, a lot of eligible voters that are, are even eligible to vote by mail to have their their vote, you know, rejected or, or not heard. Um but uh, we could expand this already existing system uh, to make it easier for, for every eligible voter to, to actually participate. We have a statewide election system, but it's also managed at the local level with counties. And sometimes that's where the, there's some difficulties at the local level. As, I mean, so how do we tease that out? Sometimes things go catawampus at the county level. Yeah, I think part of that is making sure that there is, you know, sufficient investment top down into local election administrators. Um, that means making sure that they are able to do their jobs free of intimidation and harassment, which we have not seen since the big lie has caused a lot of threats to be, you know, sent to our local election administrators. But that also means making sure that federal funding that's dedicated or supposed to be dedicated towards improving, uh, you know, election systems, election equipment, um, and, and voter outreach actually makes its way to counties so they have sufficient staff and sufficient resources to do their job as accurately as possible. Registering to vote, that's the first step. There's a lot of misinformation. Sometimes we see, you know, stories about problems in voter registration, and they say, that's voter fraud. Well, it's not voter fraud. It's a problem in voter registration. No vote was cast. But Texas, you know, we have to have ink on paper voter registration for, for most people. That seems like it would be an easy fix to make it online, automatic voter registration. Absolutely. I mean, the data and the software already exists. A lot of our partner groups uh, in, in the Texas Civil Rights Project and the ACLU sued over this in, in the Stringer lawsuit uh, a few years ago, and it enables folks that are updating their voter registration online through the DPS portal to then update their voter registration at the same time, uh, or updating their driver's license address and update their voter registration address at the same time. And so the online portal already exists, and we have not seen any instances of you know, uh, ineligible voters uh, being received or, or accessing that, that portal uh, and not being checked through the existing checks and balances that, that we have in the state. And so um, expanding that, allowing for online voter registration would definitely allow for um, the millions of eligible Texans who are not registered to get registered to vote. Um, but it is also only the first step in making sure that we overcome barriers to turnout, which is, is largely what we end up seeing in Texas elections. Katja Arasman is the voting rights manager for Common Cause Texas. An old fight over school vouchers is heating up this legislative session. Both Governor Greg Abbott and Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick have made private school choice a top priority. But lost in the ideological spin over whether taxpayer dollars should be allowed to be spent on private schools is something that should be at the heart of the matter, the financial impact. TPR education reporter Camille Phillips untangled the facts from the spin. Governor Abbott's been drumming up support for private school choice across the state. From Corpus Christi. No one knows better how a child can flourish than their parent. Without education freedom, parents are hindered in helping their own child. 
to his State of the State address in San Marcos. That must change this year. To Temple. We believe in freedom in the state of Texas. His definition of education freedom is universal access to a state-funded education savings account that can be used to pay for private school. Now is the time to expand ESAs to every child in the state of Texas. Every child includes children already enrolled in private school. When states create universal programs like this, Jack Schneider says most families that end up using them were already able to afford private school. It'd be financially foolish for them not to take advantage of the fact that they can just pull dollars right out of the state treasury and stick them in their own bank accounts to compensate themselves for the tuition that they have been paying. Schneider teaches education at the University of Massachusetts Lowell. He says the argument that vouchers and education savings accounts don't divert money from public schools because the money is just following the child doesn't hold up. In this case, money actually does not follow children who are in the public schools alone. It also will go to children who are not presently in the system, and those dollars will not be made up. Most states with voucher-like programs started out small, targeted to students with disabilities or low-income families. But in the past few years, Schneider says more and more students have become eligible. That is the game plan uh, that we have seen repeatedly. In Arizona, most students in the state's new universal program were already paying for private school before they had state funding. In New Hampshire, nearly 90 percent have never attended public school. In Missouri, it's 65 percent. Stats like this don't sit right with Texas public education advocates like Michelle Smith with Raise Your Hand Texas. The great irony here is that our funding system for Texas is one of the lowest in the country. Smith points to federal rankings that place Texas in the bottom 10 states for per-student funding. So it would be really important for the state to actually fund our kids that are in our public schools. But some arguments made by opponents of school vouchers are easy for supporters to poke holes in, too. Here's how Governor Abbott recently addressed one common talking point, that programs like this defund public schools. Under this school choice program, all public schools will be fully funded for every student the same way they are now. Abbott can say that because state lawmakers decide what it means to be fully funded. Lately, Abbott's been going a step further, claiming ownership of the Texas legislature's 2019 education overhaul. I have provided more funding for public education than any governor in the history of our state. But that was four years ago, and even with that boost, 39 states still spend more per student than Texas. This year, Abbott's pledged to increase money for public schools and dedicate state funds for parents to use at private schools. But using public dollars for private schools, by default, means there's less state funding to use elsewhere. I'm Camille Phillips in San Antonio. For a lot of Texans, caring for our hair, nails, and skin is essential to who we are, and we're loyal to the stylist to perfect our look. But how often do we really think about that person behind the chair and the practice and the knowledge that makes them the professional that they are? 
As KERA's Toluwani Osubamuwo reports, the newest generation of cosmetology students in North Texas will enter an industry that's going through changes. It's a sunny February afternoon in Plano. It's where international beauty dynasty Tony and Guy has one of its few hairdressing academies in Texas. The company is known for its prestigious hairstyling education, but it teaches people how to do nails and makeup too. Here, cosmetology students work in an open, white-tiled space styling regular people who need their hair done. So you're just a student? Yeah. But just a few weeks earlier, that same academy was filled with high school students, wondering if this is where they'd spend the next two years. The Tony and Guy Hairdressing Academy hosted an open house to introduce its first ever high school partnership program. The program begins later this year in the Plano Independent School District. When it does, students can graduate from any of the district's three senior high schools as fully licensed cosmetologists. Shakira Chooks is a sophomore at Vines High School. She says she's already applied for next school year. Because I was actually looking for programs to, that would help me go into cosmetology, and then I found out that Tony and Guy was doing something, so I wanted to do it because I heard they're really good. Students applying for the program hope to join a Texas workforce of more than 30,000 people. The U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics estimates Texas employed more cosmetologists than any other state in 2020. But Texans also earn the least among states with the most cosmetologists. People in the industry here make just over $26,000 a year on average. But young people are still interested. With beginner resources like YouTube and TikTok, people with passion and savvy can build up foundational skills before even setting foot in a school. That's what Malia Halbert did before joining the Tony and Guy Academy in September. I've always been the type of friend that like wherever we're going, someone wants me to curl their hair or braid it or do something to style it. Halbert left college during the pandemic and decided to pursue cosmetology full time. At the Academy's open house, she answered questions from students hoping to be in her place someday. I wish I had this opportunity when I was in high school to be able to right out the gate, jump into a career. Other, more seasoned educators say they're watching the industry change rapidly because of the do-it-yourself nature of internet cosmetology, for better or worse. And they say Texas is helping to push that change. In 2021, Governor Greg Abbott signed a bill allowing anyone with a cosmetology or barbering license to teach the trade. Before that, people needed a separate instructor's license. Shanna Wood Casey teaches cosmetology in Colleen. She says she and some of her colleagues weren't happy with that decision. We want it to be harder, not easier. Um, you know, we want stylists to come out of these programs even more prepared, not less prepared. Wood Casey says agencies at the state level don't have a clear understanding of what it takes to practice or teach in the industry. She says the 2021 law comes at the expense of stricter educational standards. And she says companies like Tony and Guy benefit from fewer regulations because it gives them a bigger pool of applicants. But in the worst case scenario, less experienced stylists can make crucial technical mistakes. Those can lead to serious issues, things like fungal infections and chemical burns. I wish that more lawmakers would come into a cosmetology school and see what we teach. I wish they would look at our curriculum and see what's required of our students. She says if they did, they might be surprised at what goes into making a dedicated cosmetologist. I'm Toluwani Osibamowo in Dallas. 
Governor Greg Abbott has named cracking down on cash bail an emergency item in this year's legislature. Here's Abbott at his recent State of the State address. One of the most dangerous places is one you would least expect. It's a courtroom with an activist judge using low bail to let dangerous criminals back out onto the streets. Last September, a law enforcement officer in Harris County was murdered by a criminal out on bail from a prior murder charge. Harris County's revolving bail practice is literally killing people. In just two years, more than 100 people were murdered in Houston by criminals who were let out on multiple felony bonds. Now, we did a lot last session with Senator Huffman and Representatives Burr and Smith to impose tougher bail. But this session, we must shut and lock that revolving door by passing laws that keep dangerous criminals behind bars and holding accountable the judges who let them out. Governor Abbott is supporting SJR 44, a bipartisan joint resolution that if passed by the legislature and Texas voters, it would change the state constitution to allow judges to deny bail for some violent offenders. If two-thirds of both the House and the Senate pass SJR 44, the measure would be put on the November 23rd ballot for Texas voters to approve or reject. Responding to Abbott, the bail project argues that changing the state's constitution to strip Texans of a right shouldn't be rushed through the legislature. Nicole Zayas Manzano is the senior policy counsel at the bail project. Well, I think most importantly, the fact that Governor Abbott wanted to make tinkering with constitutional rights of Texans an emergency item that needed to be dealt with quickly and as soon as possible was was really striking. Changing the constitutional amendment and the rights of Texans across the state should be a thoughtful, deliberate, and uh, very detailed conversation that is well-informed. So I think right off the bat, noting that Texans' rights were going to be quickly running through a legislative process was extremely concerning. Well, describe the rights. What is this right that you're talking about? Right. So Texans right now, as the Constitution exists today, have a presumption of innocence and have the right to cash bail as a means of accessing their liberty if accused of a crime. SJR 44 as it's written today, would take away some of those rights and essentially allow for judges across the state to more easily put you in jail before your trial, before you're found guilty, and simply keep you there until your trial. So Governor Abbott is saying no more bail for certain crimes. You're going, we're going to keep you locked up until your trial, that could be years. Mm -hmm. It could be. The, the issue is that many people often think that when you're accused of a crime, that the decision to let you out or not, or how best to, to deal with you until trial is something that's quite fast. But realistically, cases can go on for years. 
And if you're stuck inside of jail and no option out and no, you know, ability to really argue why you should have your own liberty, your constitutional right to liberty puts you in this precarious position where you're trapped behind bars for weeks or months or years in a lot of different cases. Well, look at Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton. He's out on bail right now. Right. I, I think that we have to we have to really think through all of the various ways that this can come up. Right. We at the bail project are certainly not for cash bail. We think it can create a lot of issues that we do need to contend with and that we think Texas should contend with. But quickly passing a resolution that's going to put as many as people as judges can behind bars with no option out isn't the best way to go about it. Really, we want to make sure that you aren't just trapped because you can be through this resolution and that you're not even dealing with the current situation where you're trapped because you can't afford the cash bail put against you to get out. Really, we need to consider ways in which that we can do a thoughtful balance of when someone is truly a significant danger to others and when they're really going to run away from prosecution, that that is an option on the table for judges. But for the most part, Texans aren't trying to run away. They aren't harming everybody they possibly can. For the most part, Texans are just living their lives. They're merely accused of some offenses in these cases. And unfortunately, the standard is just way too low. It's essentially saying that if you're more likely than not to potentially not come back to court in the many, many hearings that you have before you ever get to trial, then you could be locked away just because you're accused of a crime with not even the option of cash bail to pay your way out. But as we know from life, there are many reasons why we might miss, say, a dentist appointment. Um, you're stuck in traffic. You can't find child care for your children. You are denied time off of work. Just the reality is that most Texans who are missing court dates aren't trying to avoid prosecution. They're simply dealing with everyday challenges. And I think that this potential solution is not the right one for Governor Abbott to get behind. But Governor Greg Abbott is trying to present this as a public safety measure. He has this narrative that there are people who commit crimes, they get released mm -hmm. on bail, cash bail, and mm -hmm. then they go out and they continue to commit crimes. He's certainly presenting it that way. Unfortunately, I think that this measure goes far beyond that. It's also getting at this concept of just not coming back to court for everyday realities. And it's going so far that people caught up in that issue, too, are swept up inside of this solution. I think his narrative broadly that people are being let out and committing crimes is also just not true in a lot of places. Research is showing that in Harris County, reforms have actually been quite effective and actually can enhance public safety in the long term. But there are so many uh, misnomers and facts being thrown around or facts in quotations being thrown around about what's happening there. It's pretty clear from Governor Abbott's messaging around Harris County that he doesn't think it's a success. But the actual data coming out of Harris County says it is. 
and that crime may be rising across the entire country, likely due to a lot of different situations, including the fact that we've been living through a pandemic for years now. Um, Economic opportunities have been completely vaulted through that process. And I think that we have to acknowledge that crime is rising, whether bail reform has happened or not somewhere. And so to simply say this is a means of dealing with public safety, I think is just too simple of a solution to a very complicated problem that we should and have to pay attention to and come up with the right way to deal with crime. Nicole Zayas Manzano is the senior policy counsel at the Bail Project. When National Guard troops deploy within the U.S., it's typically for short periods of time, like responding to a hurricane or another disaster. But the National Guard has patrolled the southern border for most of the last two decades. Some government watchdogs say that's an inappropriate use of the Guard. From Mission Texas, TPR's Carson Frame reports for the American Homefront Project. Chimney Park RV Resort is a lush oasis of palm trees and natural vegetation. The 55 and older community sits on the bank of the Rio Grande, nestled behind a tall metal border fence. Big motorhomes sit alongside little bungalows and trailers. Wanda Lipto, a so-called winter Texan, has been coming here from Wisconsin with her husband since 2007. She circles the resort in a golf cart and greets her neighbors, who hail from all over. Missouri, here we have um, Canada, Minnesota, Nebraska. You can tell the northern states are represented here. (laughs) Hi, Diane. But Lipto has other neighbors, too. Border Patrol agents launch their patrol boats at Chimney Park. And on most days, two National Guard troops sit facing the river in a pickup truck with a raised camera in its bed. Lipto pulls up her golf cart to say hello. I live here, so I was just curious. We see you coming and going. Thank you for what you do. Keep, Keep up the good work. But you see how they're just a nice young man. Probably a long ways from home. Lots of grandmas and grandpas around here. (laughs) The last four presidential administrations have sent National Guard troops to the southwest border. About 2,400 of them are now watching the border and helping the Department of Homeland Security in other ways. Catherine Kuzminski, a researcher with the Center for a New American Security, says the long-running mission raises a big question. If there is that heightened demand, is this the proper role for the National Guard, or does that indicate that there needs to be more resourcing for the Department of Homeland Security? Kuzminski suspects part of the reason that the Guard has been deployed so long is because it's easier politically. Money for the Guard comes out of the defense budget, which is less controversial than border security funding. And so this is a way to quietly fill the capacity need without having to renegotiate budget items or increase a budget. And Homeland Security wants the help. The military provides manpower, equipment, and expertise to help Customs and Border Protection agents. Elizabeth Field is with the Government Accountability Office. We found that there was a real need for tasks such as maintaining vehicles, as well as conducting border surveillance. Uh, And officials told us that they really have a challenge when it comes to recruiting personnel. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin has said the military shouldn't be involved at the border long term and that Homeland Security should develop the ability to conduct operations on its own. But the two agencies have struggled to come to an agreement. Field says the long mission is costing the Defense Department 
both in money and in readiness. This is not a small amount of money, even for DOD. And we found that the National Guard had in some cases had to cancel training exercises because National Guard troops were on the border performing this function. In addition to the federal troops sent to the border by the last four presidents, Texas Governor Greg Abbott also has deployed his state's National Guard to the region. Victor Trevino is the mayor of Laredo, a major port of entry. He says the troops make some residents feel safer and also deter vigilantes from trying to police the border themselves. But he says the Guard isn't a permanent solution. Their mere presence and their mere uh, necessity to be here as a support uh, entities just shows us how much we need immigration reform. And as we see, we're just putting a Band-Aid on everything. Lawmakers are trying to better understand the Defense Department's role at the border. A provision in the latest defense budget requires the department to brief Congress quarterly about the mission. This is Carson Frame reporting. This story was produced by the American Homefront Project, a public media collaboration that reports on American military life and veterans. That's it for this edition of Texas Matters. Thanks for listening. I'm David Martin Davies. You can email us at texasmatters at tpr.org. There are past episodes of Texas Matters to listen to on our website at tpr.org. And you can find us wherever you get great podcasts. And tune in again next week for another edition of Texas Matters from Texas Public Radio. Support for TPR comes from Texas Mutual Insurance Company, a workers' comp provider committed to helping employers get their people home safely. Preventing workplace accidents protects families and keeps businesses productive. More at TexasMutual.com.